It is a pleasure to be starting a brand new series with you as we are approaching Holy Week, as we are approaching Easter. And as I said at the start of this service, we are uh, beginning this series before Calvary because what we want to do in this series is we want to look backwards, but even further back than the event, the final events of Jesus' life, all the way back to the Old Testament. Because one of the things that we believe is that as we peer back into Scripture, what we see, even in the Old Testament, is the image of Jesus Christ reflected on every page. And so this series is to help us gain deeper insight and, and understanding and wisdom as we look at the final events of his life approaching Holy Week. But I think it's only right that before we start this series, we take a few moments to allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds for the message he has for us. So would you please bow your heads with me and let us pray together. Lord Jesus, we give thanks that every single page of scripture speaks your name, that each story points us to you. For in you, we, endue, we do indeed find our hope and our salvation. And so this morning, Lord, as we come before one of these Old Testament stories, we ask that you would give us eyes to see you, ears to hear you, open minds to understand you, and open hearts to receive you. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, in so many ways, what makes Christianity unique among the world's religions is this idea that at the very center of our faith stands a sacrifice, the bloody death of an innocent person for the sake of the world. You see, in ancient times, people were very familiar with temple sacrifices, but now in our modern world, this is something that many people take issue with Christianity over because among the world's major religions, this story stands out apart. It stands out as unique. And in many ways, for modern people, it's quite offensive. I remember being a student of religious studies at the University of Illinois and taking an introduction to Christianity class. And as we began that class, I remember my professor, who wasn't a Christian, uh, actually saying that this is one of the pieces of the Christian faith that he found most objectionable. This idea that God would sacrifice his innocent son for people who are guilty. He said that this struck him as a form of divine child abuse and just showed the backward nature of the Christian faith, how ultimately it is something that needs to be abandoned or at least moved beyond, that there are other aspects that should be emphasized, but not this one, not the cross. Furthermore, the story that we just re heard read a few minutes ago, the very story that I'm going to be preaching on, the story of Abraham offering up his son Isaac on the altar, was another one of these tales that my professor just could not wrap his head around. He said, this is an abusive religion, an abusive religion dedicated to a fickle God who does not seem to care very much about his people. For all of its talk of love, the demonstration that we see of God's character and stories like this simply show the bankrupt nature of Christianity as a world religion. And so my question is, why do we still tell this story? And is his interpretation of it right? I think that actually when we take a closer look at Genesis 22, when we try to actually step back into the story and understand it the way its original hearers would have understood it, what we see is a very, very different picture than the one that was painted by my professor. 
And to help us do this, what I want us to do this morning is I want to really understand three things about this tale. First, I want us to understand Abraham's history. Secondly, I want us to take a closer look at Abraham's culture, to leave our modern notions behind, to step back into the ancient world and see how they would have understood what was taking place. And lastly, I want us to understand something about Abraham's God. And so to help us do that, I would invite you to open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 22. If you don't have your Bible, uh, a Bible with you, you can always grab that pew Bible in front of you. And again, just a word, especially if you are a guest, if you don't own your own Bible, we invite you to take that pew Bible and make it your own. That is our church's gift to you. Because we, we want you studying the scriptures. We want you taking a closer look at these stories to see them and understand them for yourself to really go back and take a close look. So again, that, that is our gift to you. If you do not have a Bible of your own, we want you to take that with you. And to help set this up, first and foremost, it's important to begin at the beginning, right? Very first verse in Genesis 22 says this, sometime later God tested Abraham. And this is important to note because that word for tested in the Hebrew language doesn't simply mean a test like a, an exam that you would take to see whether or not you pass. This word for testing actually is a word for training, for preparation. What he's saying here is he's saying what is about to follow in Genesis 22 is God's preparation of Abraham, a way of testing and preparing him for the calling that God had always promised to give him. And so it's with that in mind that I want us to take a closer look at Abraham's history for a moment. This story begins with this calling, this test. God calls to Abraham. Abraham says, here I am. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Now again, this is where modern people immediately have kind of a knee-jerk reaction. They say, how could, how could, Abraham do this. God just comes out of nowhere and asks him to go to a place he doesn't know and offer up something of, of value, of ultimate value, offer up his son. But we need to understand his, uh, Abraham's history for a moment because this is not the first time God has called to Abraham. In fact, this call is very, very similar in so many ways to the original calling that God made. All the way back in Genesis 12, when Abraham and God first meet, God speaks these words. He tells Abraham to go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. At the very beginning of their relationship was a call from God to Abraham to abandon the familiar, to walk away from the comfortable, and to step out into the unknown, following God where he would lead him. And so when we read in Genesis 22, verse 2, take your son and go to the region of Moriah on a mountain that I will show you, it sounds remarkably similar to the call that Abraham has heard his entire life. It's a calling that God makes to people of faith. To step away from the comfortable and the familiar. To go with him to places that he will show us at the proper time. So in many ways, this call is nothing new. God is calling Abraham to leave what he knows and to offer up what is of most value and to trust him in the process. But if you look at Abraham's story, what you see is that Abraham doesn't always do it perfectly. 
But though he believes the promises of God, there are many, many times when even as he believes in those promises, he doesn't quite believe in God's plans or God's timing. God tells him, I'm going to send you to a land that is not your own, and this land you, uh, you will have and your descendants after you will inherit. It'll be a rich land, a fruitful land. It's the land of Canaan. And yet when Abraham gets there and that land is suddenly hit by a famine, rather than staying in the land and trusting in God's timing and plans, he runs to Egypt looking for food, looking for shelter, looking for safety. It doesn't quite go as planned. Likewise, God tells him, it is, I will give you and Sarah a son. And to this son, I will make a covenant. And, and through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Yet Abraham looks at Sarah, his wife, and notes that she's pretty old. He looks at himself and says, I'm pretty old. I don't know how God could possibly do this. So I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll kind of adopt a son via surrogate. And he ends up taking uh, Sarah's uh, slave, her servant Hagar, sleeping with her and having a son, and says, there, that, that, that will be the son of promise. And God says, no. I said it would be a son through you and Sarah, and I meant that. God does indeed bless that first child of Abraham, the child Ishmael. He watches over him, gives him a family and a tribe of his own. But God reaffirms, no, my promises and my plans are trustworthy and true. And so here again, God is asking Abraham the question, do you not only believe my promises, but do you believe my plans? Do you trust my timing? Do you trust the ways in which I will accomplish what I have set out to accomplish? And again, I think that it's worth pausing right here as people of faith and saying, what does believing in God and trusting in God actually look like? I think for many of us, we believe the promise, right? Yeah, I believe that God has saved me. I know that I'm forgiven. I know that through Jesus, I have a new relationship with God. But then we live our lives according to our own plans. We don't allow the promise to shape the path. We instead do things that keep us in places of comfort and familiarity. And the moment the going gets tough or we don't quite know how all the pieces are going to fit together, we kind of rearrange and we, and we default to what's familiar and safe. We take things back into our own hands and we try to live our lives according to our own plan. And the question that God is really asking Abraham is in light of these many calls in his life, is he saying, are you going to trust me not just with the promise but with the path? Are you going to trust my timing? Are you going to trust my ways? To not just go to the place that I will show you, but to follow in the paths that I will lead you. To not just believe the promise, but to go where I will send you to, even though you might not know all the details. It's an important thing to note in Abraham's history that this is not the first time God has called and that now, as a sign of once more trying to prepare Abraham to truly be the father of faith, to truly be the inheritor of the promise, he's saying, I want you to go once more out into the deep to a place that I will show you and offer up what seems impossible. That brings us to Abraham's culture. Because of what God asks him to offer up. He says, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Now, for any of us who are parents, we know how horrifying this call is. 
But it gets a lot more difficult when you actually understand what the firstborn son meant in that day and in that culture. First and foremost, this is the child that Abraham has always longed for. The son of him and his wife, Sarah. When God says, your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, you can just feel the emotional center of Abraham's life just drop out from underneath him. Because that's what Isaac was to him. He was the son that he always wanted, the one that they were looking forward to, the one that he has now raised, this, this now teenage, this, this teenager, this young man. And God is saying, I need you, I want you, I'm calling you to offer him up. That would be difficult for any parent to respond to, but it gets even more difficult when you really understand that the purpose that the firstborn son had, that the son who would inherit had. You see, in this culture in those days, it was not an individualistic culture. It was, it was a collectivist culture. It was a culture in which the, the, the son, the, the one who would inherit, not only inherited for his own benefit, but he inherited the responsibility of providing for the entire family. Not just the nuclear family, but his entire tribe. You see, all the hopes of the community rested on the one who would inherit. Because in him, they saw their security and their blessing. They knew that it was through him that their family would thrive. It was through his leadership that they depended. The firstborn son had an incredible amount of responsibility to watch over not just his wife and his kids, but the entire tribe, the whole extended clan. He was responsible for them. Which is why when God tells him to offer up this son, what Abraham saw was not just the center of his emotional world being taken away. It was the center of everything that he'd worked for. Of all of his hopes and dreams for the future and for his people were bound up in the fate of Isaac. Because the firstborn son was the one to whom the blessing had been promised. The one who would now watch over the family. And God is asking him, do you trust me? Or did you only want me for my promises? See, that's really the question behind God asking him to offer Isaac up is, do you trust me? Do you love me or do you only want my stuff? Because you see, all along the way, Abraham has been following God. He's been following God because he's had this promise, this promise that he's going to have a son through Sarah. Well, now he has the son, and God's question to him is, will you still follow me? Or are you content with what I've given you? And again, this is a good question for us as people of faith. Do we follow God because of God, or do we follow God because we want his stuff? Do we only follow God until we get his blessings and then we kind of go our own way? Take matters into our own hands? Or are we willing to trust him with everything? Even the promises that he's given. Even when it seems like those promises are being taken away from us. Will we continue to walk with him? That is the question that God is laying before Abraham. This firstborn son upon whom all your hopes depend. Do you trust me with his life? That brings us to the thing we need to understand about Abraham's God. 
Because the firstborn son was not simply the one who received all the blessings, he was also the one who was responsible with all the curses. You see, in a collectivist culture, the firstborn son, as the leader of the family, was responsible for not only the ways in which the family thrived and was being blessed, but was also responsible for all the crimes that the family committed. That if anybody had done anything to shame the family or to shame the son uh, or to, uh, to shame the family or to bring condemnation down upon them, it was the firstborn son who needed to answer for that. The one who was ultimately responsible to ensure that justice was done. And should the family come up short, it was at his expense that the wrongs would be made right, that justice would be ensured. And furthermore, when God comes and tells Abraham to now offer up his son Isaac, although it's hard for us to understand in our individualistic culture, Abraham knew exactly what God was saying. Because Abraham, unlike us in our comfortable suburban lives, understood the darkness and the cruelty of our world. As a nomad, he would have been harassed by raiders. He would have seen the injustice and the inequity of people. He would have looked and seen how different people groups simply exploited one another for their own, uh, for their own means and for their own ends. He was, he was intimately aware of the brokenness and the wickedness of the human condition. See, he understood something that I think we often miss in our comfortable Western world, and that is that every single family on the face of the planet owes a debt of sin to God. That compared to God's perfection and his righteousness, his ultimate demands of justice, every single one of us falls short. And in a collectivist culture, when God says, I want you to offer up your firstborn son, your only son, Isaac, what he's saying is he's saying, I'm calling in your family's debt. I'm calling in what you owe me. In fact, it's something that God says later on in scripture in Exodus Where he says, you must give me the firstborn of your sons. What God is saying is he's saying, the firstborn belongs to me. Because of the debt that every family has. The debt of justice. The debt of righteousness that the firstborn must pay. See, Abraham understands something about God that we miss. That God is a God of justice. That when he looks at wickedness, he says something must be done. Someone must answer for this. I think it's, it's interesting that God doesn't go to Abraham and say, okay, Abraham, I want you to go into the tent and, and kill your son Isaac. I want you to murder him. That's not what he says. He says, I want you to offer him up as a sacrifice to me. That's how Abraham knew he wasn't hallucinating, by the way. If God had just shown him, said, I just want you to kill Isaac for no reason whatsoever, Abraham would have been like, I, that, I don't know if this is really the voice of God, but God shows up and he says, the debt that you owe. It's time for your son to pay it. Abraham understood what every other ancient family would have understood in that moment. There's a debt of sin that we must pay, and my son now has to answer for it. See, but this is a crisis moment for Abraham on so many levels because at the same time, he also knows that it's through this son God had made a promise. God had said in Genesis 17, 19, your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. And I will establish a covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. See, Abraham knew that it was through Isaac that the blessing to all the nations would flow. 
God had promised not only to give this son, but to care for this son, to bless this son, to love this son and watch over him and through him to to reach all the nations of the earth. You see, what Abraham is standing at the middle of is the collision between God's justice and God's mercy, between God's righteousness and his love. Because you see, God is perfectly holy. Before him, none of us can stand. As it says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every family owes a debt of sin to the Lord. And yet at the same time, God is the one who makes promises that I will bless you. That through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That I am a God of mercy and loving kindness. And the question at the heart of this story is how can God be both? How can he be both? How can he punish wickedness and yet forgive the wicked? And all along the way, you get this sense that Abraham is hoping beyond hope that God has an answer to that. That as they walk toward the region of Moriah, he tells his servants to stop and to stay behind. He says, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and we will come back to you. Somehow Abraham is hoping beyond hope that even as they walk toward the place of sacrifice, God will somehow provide mercy. And likewise, later on, when Isaac himself asks the question, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Abraham is hoping beyond hope that God has an answer that will satisfy both his justice and his mercy. That will prove him to be holy, but also loving. The question is, what is the answer that God provides? The answer that God provides is a substitute a substitute for Isaac. It says that at the moment he lays Isaac on the altar and takes up the knife in his hand, the Lord calls to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. God provides a sacrifice. Notice he doesn't say, okay, you passed the test, sacrifice, no, no need for sacrifice. It's fine. Whatever. Doesn't matter. No, God is still a God of justice. Someone needs to pay the price, but the beautiful thing about this story is that God provides the substitute. Abraham hoped beyond hope that there was an answer for God's holiness and God's love. And in this moment, he finally sees it. God provides a substitute. One who will take Isaac's place. It's a beautiful thing about what Abraham understood about God, that in his holiness and love, God would pay the price himself. But it still begs a question. It's a question that we actually sang in our hymn just a few moments ago. How is it possible that a ram could possibly be enough? How could this, this animal possibly be substitute not just for Isaac's sins, not just for Abraham's sins, but for the sins of the world? What substitute does God have to offer for that? 
which is why I find it so interesting that hundreds of years later, when the teachers of the law come to interrogate Jesus, to ask him about Abraham and the promises made to him, Jesus says the following words. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. What is he talking about? Well, simply he's talking about this, that Abraham knew that one day another son would come. Another son of promise. A child of Abraham who would walk up another mountain. And on his back, he would carry the wood of his own sacrifice. He would take it to the top of another mountain in the region of Moriah, a mountain called Calvary. But when he gets to the top of that mountain, there is no substitute for him. Because he himself is the substitute for us. John 3.16 says it beautifully, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God himself pays the price. Jesus leaves the comfortable and the familiar He strikes out into the unknown and offers up his life that we might live. He gladly bears the price. I love what it says in Hebrews chapter 12 that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. This is no divine child abuse. Jesus knew from the very beginning that this is what it would cost And yet for the joy set before him, he gladly did it. The joy of bringing many sons and daughters to glory. The joy of seeing many families blessed. The joy of seeing human beings being able to once more stand in the presence of the holy God who loves them. That's why he did it. That's why he came. And when you understand that, as Abraham did, that God provides the sacrifice, God pays the price, he gives us a substitute, we are able to walk with him in faith. That just as Abraham walked with God, hoping beyond hope that God had an answer that would satisfy his justice and his mercy, so we too can know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. For we have seen the lengths that God was willing to go to provide a substitute, that he came and bore our sins. He took upon himself the punishment for our transgressions, and by his wounds we are healed. The amazing thing about this story These events that took place 2,000 years before Christ is that they show us the face of our Savior. They help to reveal who he truly is, the one who willingly and joyfully paid the price, the only true and unique son who was willing to die to set his people free, who laid down his life that his whole family might know the freedom and the life that only God can give. I don't know where God is calling you to go. The calling of Abraham is the calling that he gives to each one of us. Will you leave the comfortable and follow me wherever I lead? But the comfort for you this morning is that whatever God calls you to, know this, he has paid 
more than enough to provide for everything that you will encounter. That is what it means to be truly a person of faith. To be tested and trained and prepared as Abraham was is to look and see the face of the Son and know that in him there is indeed life and light. It is in the name of Jesus Christ, the only true Son, that we say, Amen.